Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is more to be desired than gold, than much fine gold. It is sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. By your statutes we are warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Keep us innocent from hidden faults. Protect us from presumptuous sins. Let them not have control over us. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Christ we pray, amen. We are continuing with our series in the book of Exodus this morning, turning to Exodus chapter 33. We'll be reading through the entire chapter, verses 1 through 23, Exodus chapter 33, following on the heels of the catastrophe that was the sin with the golden calf, now the Lord has one more surprise in store for the Israelites, and it's not a good surprise, but it will prompt Moses again to intercede, and the Lord will respond. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, 
My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. All throughout this long series in the book of Exodus, I've been saying that Exodus is about the God who makes Himself known. God has been showing Himself to Moses, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, to the nations, revealing who He is, what He is like, showing that He is the God of power, the God of signs and wonders. He is the God of their deliverance the God who makes Himself known. But none of this would matter to Moses and to the Israelites if He would not also be the God who is there. Some of you may recognize that was the title of a a famous book in the late 60s by Francis Schaeffer. More recently, D.A. Carson came out with a book by the same title, The God Who Is There. That's our God, not the God who is absent, or the God who is indifferent. That's how many people, maybe some of us think about, yes, there is a God. He is the God who is indifferent, not the God who is far away, not the God who cannot see and does not care. That's what some of us think about this God. The God who makes Himself known. That's good news, but only if He is also the God who is there. We see here the blessing and the essential nature of God's presence. When you pray, Lord, be with them. I've been critical of that prayer before and feel like it can be a sort of lazy shorthand for just enlisting people and, Lord, just be with them. Well, rightly understood, it's not a lame prayer. It, it is in just a few short words about the most important thing you can pray if you have all of this understanding of the book of Exodus in your head and in your heart. You're not just saying, eh, you know, be with them, kind of like, you know, people do in our day, they, they say, our, our, our thoughts are with you in a time of difficulty. It used to be our thoughts and prayers, 
Now that sounds too religious, so it's just our thoughts, just, just thoughts, just beaming out. And we think, Lord, just be with them. But actually, what could be more important and what could be richer and sweeter and better than that the Lord of the universe would draw near to friends, to family, to loved ones in time of need, that He would be with them. Think how much mom likes it when all the kids are back under one roof. No matter if they all fit there, they don't have place to sleep there, or they're all on top of each other, but they're all there. All the kids have come back home and they're there because you're with each other. Think how you feel after you've been away from your spouse for a time. When, uh, when Trisha's gone, as she was for a, a couple of weeks, I just play for the kids that old song. What was that? Was it from the early 70s? Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Just Think how you feel when, when you have that reunion. Think how fun it is for you and your best friend to head out, you know, as some of you will, on some road trip this summer and you may not even have to say anything to each other, and you just drive, and you're, you're with each other. In Exodus 2, in suffering, the question the Israelites had was, does God see? Does He remember? Does He know? Now the question in Exodus 33 is, will He be here? The problem facing the Israelites in chapter 33 is that the God who brought them up out of Egypt has told them He can no longer go with them. This is how idolatry runs rampant within the camp, how catastrophic this episode with the golden calf was. We've already seen Moses' response to the golden calf. He smashes the tablets and he grounds up the calf and scatters it in their drinking supply. He rebukes and confronts Aaron. We've seen the Lord's response to their sin. Kill off the ringleaders. Send a plague. He warns them that more may yet to be coming in the days ahead. And now, perhaps worst of all as a result of this sin, He says, I cannot go with you to the promised land. This was an act of judgment. It was also an act of mercy. You see that in our text in a few different places. We see it in verse 3, for example. I will not go up among you. Why? Because you are a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious, sinful people. And if I were to be around you the whole way into Canaan, surely I would in righteous anger consume you. This captures the plot line of the entire Bible from the sin in the Garden of Eden to the promised land to the exile all the way to the consummation at the end of Revelation. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And this holy God says, I can't. I will not dwell in the midst of this sinful, rebellious people. Do you see again how this is a type of fall? This is a type of Eden, well, 2.0, except the, the, there's been other iterations of the flood and others, maybe 3.0 or 4.0. Again, we see 
their sad history repeating itself, just like Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden from God's presence. Now the Lord says, because of this sin, I cannot be with you. And He graciously says, I will still give you the land of Canaan. I've not forgotten my covenant with your fathers. I will give you this land. It could be translated, a land oozing with milk and sap. As the Veggie Tales taught us, hmm, sounds sticky. He says, I will drive the peoples out from there. I will make good on my promise. He says, I'll send an angel to get you there, but I cannot go with you. In his commentary, Phil Riken has this good line, they were still booked for the promised land, but God had canceled his reservations. That's the problem. And look in verses 4, 5, and 6 at the people's response. It's a good response. First, they, they mourn. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Don't underestimate how significant this is because I'm not sure, if we're honest, we would all automatically be devastated. Verse 4 calls it a disastrous word. We may feel like, eh, it's kind of an inconvenient word. We may be tempted to think, well, well, shoot, that's kind of a bummer that God did some good stuff for us. But hey, we got a great trip in front of us. Promise, we still got the promised land? We still, he's still going to drive out our enemies? We got an angel? Hey, yeah, I mean, a little bump in the road. We're good to go. So, yeah, it's not a big deal. Okay, God won't be with, but we get to still go on the vacation. One of the, one of the, the many blessings of, of bringing John here uh, to lead worship uh, from Hawaii is that his pastor, really good guy at the PCA church there in Hawaii, as, as uh, I've gotten to know him, Jason's gotten to know him a little bit, and he said several months ago or after John came, he said, now, Kevin, you were very happy for John and to make this move, but as, as we've given you this, um, our, our, our worship leader, I think you owe us a favor. He's even asking me to, you know, speak, and I couldn't. He says, so uh, I'm going to call a favor now, and you need to come to Hawaii and preach. He's like, okay, okay. <laughs> Twist my arm. So we get John, and I get to go to Hawaii. That's a good deal. Uh, so, so I have it on the calendar for next January. That's when you go to Hawaii. Uh, it's, it's our anniversary, and so I'll go, and I'll, I don't know, I'll preach once, but I'll get to go to Hawaii with Trisha. Now, imagine if a couple weeks before that trip, my wife says, I can't go with you. Now, what is the proper response for me? Now, I can say, well, I got to preach, but okay, no, we're, we're going mainly for a getaway, an anniversary. What's the response I should give? Oh, uh, well, have fun with the kids. <laughs> what a blessing for you. <laughs> we'll FaceTime when I get there. Well, the proper response is, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go anymore. I really don't want to go, right? I don't, I don't want to go. I don't want to go anymore. So, the the, the Israelites have given a sincere, wise, 
the appropriate response. This is a disastrous word. So what? We're going to the promised land, okay? And the angel will come and he'll drive out the end. But God's not going with us. It reminds me of this question, which I've heard from John Piper and some of you have heard as well. He says, if you could have heaven with all your family there and your friends, be reunited with your loved ones. You could have all the food that you love, none of the pounds. You could see beautiful sunsets and you would have golf and beaches and mountains and fishing or whatever you're into. You could have all of that, but Jesus isn't there. Is it still heaven? Do you still want to go? A question may be slightly unfair because every good and perfect gift comes from God. You can't separate all those good things from the God who gives those good things. But it's still a very provocative thought. And it strikes me and probably cuts you a little bit. What are we really interested in? Do we want God or do we just want His gifts? Would we be happy with a, a heaven of all those delights and, oh, Jesus is here somewhere? I forgot about that. Would we be happy to go to the promised land, whether God would go with us or not? Truth be told, many of us would prefer the promises of God without the burden of a relationship with God. We say, sign me up. I don't have to deal with, I don't have, I have a relationship with God. That takes time, and then he asks things of me. I don't have a relation, but I can get his promises. I can get the good stuff. I can get the blessings. I can get into Canaan. That's perfect. That is, that is a tailor-made American, and let's just say human, religion. But let's give the Israelites some credit. They know this is a disastrous word, and they mourn. Promised land, but, but you're not going with us, God? And the second thing they do, you notice, is they take off their ornaments. We use that word ornaments. You think, I didn't know they had Christmas trees, but that's not what it means. It, it, it means their, their, their jewelry, anything sort of fancy adornment that they were wearing, they take it off. Why? Uh, maybe in part because they're entering into a time of mourning. This is what you do. You don't get all dolled up when you're in a time of mourning. But more than that, there was likely an association with idolatry. In Genesis 35, Jacob leads his family in a covenant renewal at Bethel, and in doing so, he has them give up their foreign gods and take the rings that were in their ears. doesn't mean that all earrings are bad, but it just means that there, there was some sort of association with pagan idolatry. We see it back in Genesis, okay? You're going to follow the Lord alone, so get rid of your foreign gods, take out those earrings, and then here, take off those ornaments. There's some sort of pagan association with some of these things that they were wearing, perhaps some of the gifts, some of the plunder from the Egyptians, some of the, uh, you know, instead of wearing a cross around their neck, they got a little frog goddess, or they, they have a little, you know, omen to Amon-Ra. He says, I want you to get rid of those. And you notice the word at the end of verse 6, they stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So from this time forward, we're in a period of mourning for our sin, and more importantly, we have stripped ourselves of these idolatrous associations. The people have expressed heartfelt contrition, true repentance, 
Now, this doesn't mean the Lord is now obligated to go with them. There are still consequences for their sin, but it does mean, mean that they are realizing what they've done and realizing what they really need. And do you see here the great irony of idolatry? They wanted a God they could see. That's why they, that's why they made the golden calf. Here, O Israel, are the gods that delivered you out of Egypt. Here they are. You can see them. You can, you can dance to them. You can go around them. You can touch them. You have a part in creating. They wanted a God who could be closer, a God that could be right in front of them for their eyes to see. They wanted more of God on their own terms. And now they are threatened with so much less of God. Idolatry is always the pursuit of short-term gain for the assurance of long-term loss. They thought they were smart. We're going to get more of God. And they end up with a threat of so much less than they had before. We see an example of the loss of God's presence in verses 7 through 11, moving through the text, th this whole business about the tent of meeting. Now, this may seem like a strange out-of-place explanation that interrupts the unfolding drama. After all, we come back to verse 12, and we have Moses talking to the Lord again. So why do we have this little parenthesis in verses 7 through 11, just to give us a little history about this special little tent that Moses went into? What we have is actually an important illustration of God's diminished presence among the Israelites. And we skipped over some important chapters in order to get to this golden calf episode. But after the covenant renewal ceremony in chapter 24, and then we go to the golden calf in chapter 32, in between what we skip were all those instructions related to the worship of Yahweh, and in particular, the tabernacle, and what it was to look like, and what it was to be made of, and who was to minister there, and what was to be inside, and where it was there in the middle of the camp. God was meant to permanently dwell in the midst of the people. And indeed, that's what will happen later on. And we'll have the three tribes here, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, right in the middle, God's presence there at the tabernacle. But that's not what we have here in verses 7 through 11. You notice what we have? Instead of God permanently dwelling in the midst of the people, we have a temporary tent that was outside the camp. Verse 7, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And the people could maybe see Moses, and so they had these, these expressions of honor and worship as he went in there, and the cloud would settle there. The tabernacle would have sacrifices of atonement. Priests and Levites would attend to the work there. The Ark of the Covenant would inhabit the tent, dwell in the literal, spiritual center of Israel's life. But what do we have here? We have a makeshift tent that's not in the center, it's outside the camp. It's not permanent, it's temporary, and there's only one man who can do business there, and that's Moses. One Israelite is still on intimate terms with Yahweh, and it says he talks to God face to face. Don't you love that phrase there? As a man speaks to his friend, verse 11. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you should want with God? to speak to Him as a man speaks 
to his friend. There, there is this intimate relationship that Moses still has with the Lord. But it's in this tent that's outside the camp, and he's the only one that goes. And when he leaves, it says his assistant, a young man, Joshua, stands there. Well, why is Joshua there? Most likely because he's guarding the place. No one else can enter in here except for Moses. So the Israelites are to make their way to the promised land, but they no longer have the promise of the one who made all the promises. The God who is there is now the God who is over there, outside the camp. You have to understand, in Israel's religious life, this is outside of the place of protection. This is outside of the, the, the sphere of, of holiness. Like it, we'll say in Hebrews, Christ had to go outside the camp. That's where people went when they were forsaken. They went outside the camp. That's where you had to go when you had to, you know, dig a hole and, and shovel over your, you know, excrement. You had to go outside the camp. Here is the Lord in this tent meeting with Moses outside the camp. He's not in the middle where he's supposed to be. How does a holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people? They wanted more of God, and now they have the diminished presence of God in their life. You can mark it very well. When you try to get God on your own terms, you don't get more of God. You get less of God. So now, as before, Moses will make intercession. He makes three requests. Request number one. He says, please be with me, verses 12, 13, and 14. Please be with me. He asks the Lord, who is this angel? I don't know who you're sending. You told me to go, but I don't know who it is. Okay, you said an angel. I, I, I don't know what this means. And so he makes a, a petition, a petition based on what God has already said. You see that in verse 12. You have said, I know you by name. I've found favor in your sight. If that's true, then... May I have this favor in your sight? It is always a good idea to pray to God based on the things that He's already told us. So you come as a Christian and you say, God, you have told me that, you ha that I have found favor in your sight for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. You have chosen me. You have redeemed me. You have purposed to be glorified in me. Moses is praying as we ought to pray based on the things that God has told him. He says six times in this verse, in these verses here, there's this language of knowing, and five times in these verses, this language of finding favor in your sight. And he asks the prayer in verse 13, please show me now your ways. This is Moses' way of saying, would you be with me? We know God by knowing His ways by knowing His laws, His statutes, His Word. Knowing God is not a process of mystical osmosis. You just sort of sit there and just let things seep in, and I just know. No, it's not that. It, it means to know what God is like, what He has done, what He commands. Moses, says, I want you to be with me, and I want to know you. And if I'm going to know you better, and if I know you're going to be with me, I need to know your ways. Tell me what you're like. Tell me what you want. Tell me how to get there. Tell me what your statutes are. That's what I want to know. If you have no interest in knowing the laws of God, you don't have an interest in knowing God. 
If we are not passionate about getting into our Bibles, it's because, among other things, we are not that passionate about getting to know God. And God says in this gracious response, I will be with you and I will give you rest. You see that in verse 14? Yes, Moses, I will grant it. My presence with go, will go with you. It's, it's, it's very possible, even likely, that Jesus had this passage in His mind when He tells the disciples, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Surely Moses was weary. Surely the thought of, of leading with it in, you know, in, in a nondescript angel to the promised land made him feel burdened and heavy laden. And Yahweh says to him, I hear you, and my presence will go with you. And when my presence is with you, that will be your rest. Listen, there is no real and lasting rest apart from the knowledge that God is with you. That may be why some of you are so constantly restless, restless with your own self, restless with your family, restless with your career, restless with who you are, how you fit in, because you do not really know my presence will be with you. I'll be with you. I'll go ahead. I'll come along. I'll hem you in behind. Yes, Moses, I will answer your prayer and I will be with you. Only in knowing that God is with us. Just like a child, you know, all sorts of scary things that a child has to face. But if that little child knows, Mom, Dad, will you be there? Okay, I'm going to go to this new place. I haven't been there, but you'll be with me, Mom? Okay, we're going to some place that we haven't seen before. Dad, you're going to be with me? You'll hold my hand across the street? Okay. You're still scared. You're still not sure. It's still hard. It doesn't make all that go away, but you think, okay, I can do that. I can go somewhere I haven't been before. If you know that my presence will be with you. Please be with me is the first request. But Moses wants more. And you get hints of it already at the end of verse 13. Consider too that this nation is your people. Because he's asking for himself at this point, uh, how do I know? Who's going to go with me? And God says, my presence will be with you, Moses. I will give you, Moses, rest. But he's already hinted at, okay, but... But what about the nation? So here's his second request. Not only please be with me, please be with us. So let's talk about us. You notice the, the change in some of the language here. Verse 16, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people, okay, Moses saying, I've been so bold as to ask that you would be with me, but now I have a second request. Would you not only be with me, what about us? What about this nation? And have you ever noticed that verse 16? This strikes me as one of those verses tucked away in the Bible that we don't think much about, and yet you, you, you can meditate on it all day. It's absolutely staggering. Is it not? in your going with us so that we are distinct. 
What an amazing thing for Moses to say. What distinguished Israel from the other nations? Their land, they had none. Their pedigree, they were recently slave people. Their obedience, their righteousness, hardly. What set them apart was not what they had or where they were from or what they looked like, but who was with them. That's the covenant promise. I will be a God to you, children after you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. I wonder for how many of us we could really say, this is what makes us distinct. Is this, this what you go out into the world? Is this, this the reason you have to, to hold your head up high? This is the reason you have to feel like you're, you're somebody, there's something. Is it not this that makes us distinct, Moses says, that you're with us, that you're our God, and you know us, and you love us, and we're your people? We all want to feel special. We all want to feel special in some way, and, and you know, some of you have, we have one of these, these bright red plates. I don't know where, where these were being sold or how so many of us got them, but one of those places just, you are special. You have some of those you are special plates, comes out on birthdays, comes out on um, missionaries visiting or something, and just you are, but we, we all want that. You know, kids want to hear that. Adults want to know that. You, you want to know it in some way. You know, there's some ways we don't want to stand out. There's some, it's different for all of us, but we all want to know anything about me that's really unique, special, sort of makes me sit up and notice and the world should say, look, that's, that's amazing. We all want that. Well, here Moses hits upon the one thing that truly makes God's people distinct. This is their you are special plate. That God is with them. Here's what we have that matters more than anything else. God, the God, is our God. Be with me, Moses says. And not only that, would you be with us? Because we're, we're nothing. You said we were a holy people. We're a royal priesthood. I don't matter. We're not any of that if you're not with us. If you don't go ahead, if you just send an angel, we're just, we're just kind of good-looking Jebusites. Many of us, that's what we'd settle for. I'm happy. I'm just happy to be kind of good-looking Hivites, just sort of nice, moral, decent people. God gives us a few things. He gets us where we want to go, keeps us out of trouble. Moses knows better. He said, no, that doesn't make us special at all. We're not looking to look like everybody else. The one thing above all things that makes us different is you're with us. You're our God. And so he's bold enough now to make a final request. Please be with me, he says. Then please be with us. And now a final request, verse 18. Please show me your glory. And you, you might think, well, Moses has seen plenty of the Lord's glory, and he has. From the staff with the snake and the Red Sea and the plagues and the burning bush, he's seen more glory than anybody else, but he wants a fuller picture. 
He he wants face-to-face. He wants as much as he can handle. He wants more than a lightning bolt, more than another cloud. He wants to see God like he talks to God face-to-face. But, of course, he cannot get a full-on sight of God in his glory. You may be able to see and feel the rays of the sun. You may be able to, you know, stare intently at the shadow cast by the sun, but it's not a good idea to stare directly into that bright sun and just look at it as, as long as you can. It will do damage to you. You know the sun. You feel the sun. You're illuminated by the sun. You can't ah, quite stare at that. And so it is with God and His glory. He says, I'll let my, my backside pass by. We don't know exactly what this means. He may simply be saying in a figure of speech that you won't see my face. Elsewhere in Scripture, backside or my back is, is used to mean the opposite, you know, not my face. Jeremiah 18, 17, God says He will show them His back and not His face on the day of their disaster. So it was a means of, it was a kind of judgment. No, you don't get to see my face, you'll get to see my back. Probably means Moses didn't see anything physically here. It's not like he saw a, a giant man with his broad back go by. It means, no, you you can't see me face to face, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and there'll be something, there'll be something of my glory that will be evident to you. And what does Moses see? Well, you notice, and we'll, we'll get to this in chapter 34 next week as well, that Moses sees by hearing. That's how it is usually. Sight comes through the ears. So the Lord shows His goodness by speaking two things. That's how He shows. So it's not so much that He's in the cleft of the rock and He's sort of peeking out and there's a giant walking by, but what He sees, He sees by what He hears. You notice what God says, verse 19, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. To say the divine name in His presence is to give something of the backside even of His glory. That's the first thing he says, but then there is a declaration of his character in verse 19, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The God who makes himself known, the God who is there, is fundamentally a God of sovereign grace. Paul, you may know, quotes this verse 19 in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is that famous and to some of us infamous chapter where Paul is arguing about the rightness of election, that God would choose Jacob and not Esau, that God would choose those who would believe and be saved and He would harden others. And in the midst of this argument, He says in verse 14 of Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because that sounds like God's not being very fair. The answer, by no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And we may think, well, Paul, that's not a very good argument. We're dealing with a really difficult issue about election or predestination or reprobation, and you just go and you just quote from Exodus 33. It still seems like God is unjust. 
what Paul does is to answer this question about the injustice of God by reasserting what it means for God to be God. He says, no, that doesn't make God unfair. What it makes God is God. What it means is God is not you, and you're not God, but God is God. God's glory, God's goodness, the revelation of God's character are disclosed in that statement. Think about it. And we'll get another statement in chapter 34. There's a second one that's related that also talks about God's loving kindness and grace. But here, when Moses wants to see his glory, and God says, you can't see it, but you'll get some of the afterburner of my glory. What does he do? He says two things, my, his name, and he makes a declaration of his sovereign grace. You want to know my glory? Let me tell you about my freedom and about my mercy. That's why these issues are important. That's why it's not simply reformed or one of the points of Calvinism, which some of us grew up with and love, and some of us seem, it very, seems very strange or maybe even offensive, but it confronts Moses, just as Paul will then pull it to confront his own readers with our human instincts, which are to make God more like us rather than to let God be God. God's sovereignty his free decision to show undeserved mercy to whom He will show mercy is not merely a reformed doctrine. It is not a minor point. It is essential in describing and defining what it means for God to be God. The freedom of God to dispense mercy to whomever He pleases, apart from any constraint outside of His own will, is the essence of what it means for God to be God. You notice it comes on the heels of declaring His name. This is what it means to be Yahweh. For God to be God, He must be merciful and He must be sovereign. And both teach us something indispensable about God, namely, He is gracious and His grace is absolutely free grace. That's the glory. That's the goodness. Both of those things. Some of us struggle. We think, how can God really be good? But isn't that what the Lord said in Exodus 33? I will cause my goodness. Have you connected that before? God's goodness with Paul's doctrine and the Bible's doctrine of sovereignty and election. In God's mind, I'm telling you how good I am because I show mercy according to my own freedom and after the counsel of my own will. And were it some other way, these undeserving people would not know mercy and grace. This God of glory, this God of goodness, this God of grace would now go with Moses and be with this sinful people, though they don't deserve it. He will show mercy on whom He will show mercy. Do you see how this is the heart of the gospel? Emmanuel, God with us, not any old God. You have this amazingly transcendent, sovereign God. He is with you. Yeah, it, it, 
there's nothing amazing about a little God, about, you know, somebody going with you. It's nice to have your friend go with you. That's not what we're saying. And there's, you know, we can understand how there might be some amazing transcendent God of the universe who's way up there, out there, but the great mystery and majesty and good news of the Christian faith is that this God of sovereign grace is the God who draws near to be with us sinful people. And the news gets even better because some people did see Him face to face because for a time He made His tabernacle and dwelt among us. And He will come back again. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, Yahweh said, Moses, you cannot see. I hide you in the cleft of the rock. You'll get the, just the, the afterburner of my glory. One day, though, I will dwell in the midst of these sinful people. And you will be able to look face to face upon all of my goodness and glory in the person of my Son. Jesus said to her, John eleven forty. did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? John 14, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. That's a good question. That sounds like a reasonable request. Jesus said to him, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus said He was going to go and He was going to prepare a place. He was leaving, and Philip said, okay, you're leaving. Let us just see the Father and we'll be okay. And Jesus says, you don't get it, Philip. Look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the glory of God. What you need as a church in the months and years ahead, more than anything else, more than you even need a senior pastor, you need what you have already been promised, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you and will never leave you nor forsake you. You need to know the God who makes Himself known, the God who makes Himself known as the God of sovereign grace, and you need to know that this God of sovereign grace is not the God over there, but He is the God who is right here with you and can bring you all the way to the promised land and will be your God as we are His people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to see Your glory the glory as of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. How amazing that we have seen more of your glory than Moses. Than Moses, with all that he saw, we know more of your goodness. We know more of your glory because we know Christ. We know you as the one who is free and the one who in freedom loves to show mercy. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.